0: Acts chapter 24, only a four more chapters to go after tonight and we finish out the book of Acts. Before we get into the chapter tonight, just sort of a a question, if you will, a thought to throw out at the very beginning, I think we can all identify with this. Sometimes in life, you've probably felt like I have, that you're sort of at the mercy of other people, that that you, you sort of live at you know based upon their whims and and they're they're doing their own thing and you're being affected by it and it seems like there's very little that you can do it's like it's out of your control and yet you're being swept in and out of things and and in some ways it it almost feels like your life can be out of control well i want to encourage you tonight Even though it may seem that way at times, even though it may feel that way at times, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus Christ, that's never true. We never are living at the whims of others. It may seem that way. It may seem that we're just at the mercy of other people's decisions and choices. But when we are a child of God, God ultimately is the one watching out for each of us. And if he's allowing something to take place in our life, then he has a purpose and a plan for it. We see that here with Paul throughout the book of Acts. And especially in these last chapters of Acts, where it seems like due to people just wanting... uh, to sort of rise in politics, he's passed from one politician to another. And he never is getting a fair trial. And he's sitting in jail. And it just seems like, you know, he's just at their mercy. But what we have to realize as we look at Paul is that is that God has a purpose for all of this. Just as God may have a purpose for why we seem to be at the mercy of other people in our lives and pass through and 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 that their decisions and choices are somehow affecting us. It's all part of God's plan and maybe part of, of how God, as we're talking about Sunday, is trying to recreate Jesus in us. We certainly can see that even in the Old Testament through the story of Joseph. That God, the Bible says in the book of Genesis, was with Joseph at every turn. When he was in the pit, he was with Joseph. When he was in the prison, he was with Joseph. God never abandoned nor forsook Joseph. And yet, he had a reason why Joseph was going through all these things. And he wasn't at the mercy of his brothers. And he wasn't at the mercy of Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. He was going through a process that God was taking him through. And if we looked at it from a human point of view, we would say, "Oh my goodness, poor Joseph. He's just he's just living life at the mercy of his brothers or these officials in Egypt." No. The hand of God was on his life. And we can come to the book of Acts and we could say, "Oh my goodness, poor Paul. He's at the mercy of these politicians. And he's at the mercy of all these angry Jews." But God had his hand on Paul. And there was a purpose for every twist and turn that Paul was taking. I hope you and I can both remember that as we travel through life. With that tonight, I want to primarily concentrate on four things from this chapter. And the first thing that I see here is that we have an advocate. We have an advocate. Notice it says in Acts 24, verse 1, After five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought formal charges against Paul to the governor. When Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to uh, accuse him, saying, We've experienced a lengthy time of peace through your rule, and reforms are being made in this nation through your foresight. And this guy starts to flatter the governor. We use other terms to describe what's happening here, but I'll use the term flattery, okay? Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge it everywhere and in every way, you know, yada, yada, yada. He's trying to butter this guy up, right? But I want to go back to this. In our net translation, there in verse 1, it describes this man named Tertullus as an attorney. That word in the original means a skilled advocate. A skilled advocate. In other words, they wanted to make sure that they had a skilled attorney, someone who would represent them to the governor because they wanted Paul to go down. And they were, they were going to get the best guy they could. And so they hired this skilled defense etor- or, uh, attack attorney, if you will, a prosecutor, this skilled advocate named Tertullus, To represent them before the governor. As I thought about that, I thought, well, what a great reminder and encouragement for us. Because we have to remind ourselves, we have an advocate as well. We have, in fact, the most skilled advocate. We have the best advocate in the universe. His name is Jesus Christ. And unlike a prosecuting attorney, he is our defense attorney. And there's no one better I would want on my side than Jesus Christ. There's no one I would want to represent me before God than Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what John writes in 1 John. So keep your finger there. We'll come back to Acts 24. But I wanted to share a couple of these passages with you because this was just so encouraging to me and something that I was able to take out of this study In Acts 24. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. And He Himself, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Wow. Have we forgotten that Jesus Christ is our advocate? That He stands to represent us before God, and that He has already paid for our sins, past, present, and future, so that anytime our sins come up before God, it's They're paid, paid in full. It is finished, Jesus said when he died on the cross. What I have done pays for their sin in full when they turn in faith to me and accept me as their Savior. We no longer have to pay for our sins. We have an advocate now, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. My goodness, folks, we could get up every day and sing hallelujah to that one. Every day, we can wake up and say, thank you, Jesus, that you are my advocate. Because none of us could stand before God if it wouldn't be for Jesus Christ. None of us could even come into his presence if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. We couldn't pray. We wouldn't have any access or anything without our advocate, Jesus Christ. He makes the way for us, and he represents us. In fact, I've got to show you this passage of Scripture. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. We're going to leave 1 John and go back to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. It's one of the last books in the Old Testament. In fact, it might be easier to find Matthew and then go backwards through Malachi and then you'll hit Zechariah. And go to Zechariah chapter 3. Just like the book of Job early on whenever You know, you get into the book of Job and God lets us in to sort of a behind-the-scenes look at what happens every once in a while and how God is having this conversation with Satan about Job and stuff. Well, here we have another peek uh, into a conversation that God uh, is having with Satan But it's also now, instead of in regards to Job, uh, it's in regard to Joshua the high priest here in Zechariah chapter 3. And this is not the same Joshua as the Joshua who led the Israelites into the Promised Land. This is Joshua the high priest who comes on the scene much later on than the Joshua from the book of Joshua. But I want you to notice this in Zechariah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Next I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord... By the way, I believe the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ has always been. He's the eternal Son of God. And He existed before Bethlehem. And in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, there are angels of the Lord that appear in the Old Testament. And how can I differentiate between just an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord? You can identify him always in this way. When it is simply an angel of the Lord and a human being tries to worship an angel, the angel's always like, Don't worship me, I'm just an angel, get up. When it is the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he receives and accepts and welcomes worship. That's one of the ways you can differentiate whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And let me also say this, and just quickly. Some people today don't think it's important that, that we fight for the truth of God's Word today. But can I tell you that right now, and has been this way really for the past couple of decades, in many of our Bible colleges and seminaries, that what young men and young women are learning in those Bible colleges and seminaries today is that Jesus Christ never appeared in the Old Testament. That's huge. And so then we have pastors and Bible teachers who are graduating from those Bible colleges and seminaries who never teach anyone about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament because to them he doesn't exist in the Old Testament. Can I tell you, he exists very clearly in the Old Testament. And he does so as the angel of the Lord. So notice here, I, Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And this falls in line with the character of Satan Satan is called the devil, the slanderer, the accuser. And he's constantly slandering us and accusing us before God. He accuses us to ourselves. He slanders us all the time. It's one of his ministries, if you will. It's one of the things he occupies himself with. He's always throwing our failure, our sin up in our faces. Notice what happens. The Lord said to Satan, verse 2, May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. And by the way, I just want to point this out real quick. That right there shows how important Jerusalem is to God. That comes into play with prophecy and even today. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man, Joshua the high priest, like a burning stick snatched from the fire? Any of us who've ever watched fires burn, get a stick in there and and it's about ready to just smolder away. God is comparing even the high priest Joshua to that stick that was about ready to just smolder and burn up, but I snatched him out of the fire. That's a picture really of the grace and mercy of God. And then verse 3 says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood there before the angels. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used here for filthy is a word that no other word in the Hebrew language could be more filthy than the word that's used here. It's bad. Now think about that, though. This is the high priest Joshua, and yet before God, he's filthy. The angel spoke up to those standing all around, remove his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, I have freely forgiven your iniquity. Wow. We could stop right there again and say, Hallelujah. Through God, our filthiness is done away and our sins and our iniquity is forgiven by God. That'd be great enough. But God never stops there. God not only takes our sin away, He gives us His righteousness in return, which is exactly what you see pictured here. When after He says, I have freely forgiven your iniquity and will dress you in fine clothing. God not only takes all the filth away, He gives us His righteousness in return. Then I spoke up. Let a clean turban be put on his head. That was one of the articles of clothing of the high priest. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood nearby. What a picture. Here's Satan, the accuser, the slander, the one who's standing there going, oh, this Joshua the high priest, he's filthy. He has no right to... To be the high priest, he has no right to serve you. He's awful. And there's the angel of the Lord saying, Well, on his own, yes. But through me, I have removed his filthiness, his iniquity. I have forgiven him, and I've given him my righteousness. Folks, you could transfer yourself into Zechariah chapter 3. I could transfer myself into that passage. And picture what God has done for each of us through Jesus Christ. And it's because we have an advocate, one who represents us and stands before us in the presence of God, just as the angel of the Lord here did in Zechariah chapter 3. So I'm sure that the governor and many other people back to Acts chapter 24 was probably pretty impressed that this Tertullus was coming down to represent this... Uh, those who are bringing charges against Paul. But I want you and I to be impressed every day that when we wake up, we have the Advocate standing before us uh, in heaven, and His name is Jesus Christ, and He represents us every day, and He stands up for us every day, and He stands up for us to our accuser every day, who accuses us and slanders us before God. Thank you, God for being our advocate. Back to Acts chapter 24. So after all this flowery speech that Tertullus makes to butter up Felix, he then begins to lay out the charges. And there's three specific charges here beginning in verse 5 of Acts 24. The first thing is, he's just a pest. This Paul is a pest. Notice he says in verse 5, We have found this man to be a troublemaker. Literally it means a pest, a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And that was important to the Romans. Because the Romans were all about order. And all about peace. And they didn't want people causing trouble in their empire. So, you know, that was, that was important. Also, though, notice something really interesting here. In that charge by Tertullus, he is letting us in to the impact that Paul and the early Christian church has already made. Because notice he uses the phrase, even before Felix, throughout the whole world. As far as the known world at this time, they've stirred things up. So the first sort of charge is he's just a pest. But then the second one is, and he's also a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now I think the reason why, again, being a skilled orator and an attorney and an advocate, why he used this phrase is this was a way to sort of dig into to trying to deface and defame Christianity by calling it a sect of the Nazarenes, because Nazareth was a town that was pretty much despised in. Paul's day as it was in Jesus' day. You know, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And so to call Christianity the sect of the Nazarenes was sort of, again, a way to, to downplay what, what this group was all about. And yet he called Paul a ringleader, one who stands up and stands out in front of. We need people like that today in the church, just like Paul. Not in a bad sense to be a ringleader, but in a good sense. One who's willing to stand up in front of and stand out in front of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and represent Jesus to the world. So that was the second. And then the third, verse 6, he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now this was all a lie because the reason they said that that was was because he let this Gentile into the court of the Jews and he never did. So we arrested him. Yeah, but he also doesn't add the fact that they tried to kill him too. That wouldn't have went over very well and represented them very well before Felix. When you examine him yourself, you will be able to learn from him about all these things we are accusing him of doing. And the Jews also joined in the verbal attack claiming that these things were true. Verse 10. When the governor gestured for him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know that you've been a judge over this nation for many years, I confidently make my defense. And we've talked about this word before. Giving a compelling and sound account of oneself. As you can verify for yourself, Paul says, Not more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Why does Paul say that? If Paul's such a pest, has he stirred up all this trouble in just 12 days? That's one of the reasons why he starts off that way. He says, I was only there for 12 days. How much trouble could I cause in 12 days? These people are making it sound like I've been there for years stirring up trouble. Then he goes on to say, they did not find me arguing with anyone or stirring up a crowd in the temple courts or in the synagogues or throughout the city, nor can they prove to you the things they are accusing me of doing. Well, that's pretty important. But Paul does say this, He says, but I will acknowledge, I will confess one thing before you. That I worship the God of our ancestors according to the way which they call a sect. Believing everything that is according to the law that is written in the prophets. What Paul is basically saying is, I don't contradict what the Old Testament is saying. Everything that I'm teaching, everything that I'm trying to promote, actually goes along with all that the Old Testament said. That's, That's what I believe. And then he says, I have hope in God, a hope that these men themselves accept too, that there is going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The first thing I saw in this chapter is we have an advocate. The second thing I see is we have a hope. Paul had a hope. That's why he could be so confident. Because that's living with confidence, anticipation, and expectation because of what we know is sure. And he picks out the resurrection because remember last week we saw where he divided the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees because the Pharisees believe in resurrection and the Sadducees don't. And Paul's simply saying the Old Testament teaches resurrection of the dead. I'm not... Contradicting anything the Old Testament says. I'm actually going along with what the Old Testament taught. And I have this hope. And you and I do as well. In fact, hopefully, we have this hope in resurrection. And notice this. Paul goes on to say in verse 16... This is the reason I do my best to always have a clear conscience toward God and toward people. Notice what Paul's saying there. He's saying the reason I live the way I do is because of the hope I have. In other words, I'm not living because of what I don't know is sure. But I'm choosing to live a certain way based upon what I know is sure. I know there's going to be a resurrection. I know I'm going to see God one day. I know there is life after death. I know there's future accountability. I know all these things are sure. I have hope in them. I live with this expectation, anticipation, and and confidence in these things. And because of that, this is why I live the way I do. So notice the connection again between what I believe, what my convictions are, what my hope is in, and how I live my life. If I truly don't have hope, if if I don't know these things for sure, then that's going to be reflected in how I live or how I don't live. And there's even a disconnect today between people who say, this is what I believe, but then you look at the way they live and go, really? You believe that, but it doesn't seem to be affecting your life? And see, according to the Bible, what we believe should always affect the way we live. What we have hope in should always drive the way we live. And that's exactly what Paul says here, because we have hope. I think Paul's also saying this here, Luke is saying this, that our lives should be directed more by what we know is sure than what we don't know for sure. And too often we even as Christians allow our lives to be driven by forces of things that we don't know for sure. More so than the things we know for sure. Based upon what God has promised us in his word, what we have hope in. And I think what God says to all of us as Christians is... ...live based upon the hope that you have. Just like Paul's doing. Live based upon what you know for sure primarily... Not on what you don't know for sure or what's not certain because that's not a good way to live. Keep your finger there in Acts 24 and go over to the book of Hebrews real quick. Speaking of hope, I love this phrase out of Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19. In this passage, The author of Hebrews is talking about God's promises and how it's impossible for God to lie and all of that in verse 18. Then in verse 19, notice what he says at the beginning. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. Our hope is an anchor. In fact, the anchor was actually the most popular symbol for early Christians. Many Christians today think that the most popular symbol was the cross or maybe even a fish. But if you go into the catacombs in Rome or go into other places where the early Christians were, there are actually more symbols and pictures of anchors than there are fishes and crosses. The anchor was a huge symbol for the early Christian. Why? Because of these truths. That it it represented the hope that they had. And they were very much living in, in a nautical society. Paul here in Acts was taking ships all over. They understood what an anchor was. And what an anchor did. And so for them, this anchor was a very important symbol to them. It represented to them the hope, the sureness, the steadfastness, the stability, the security that they only had in God and in His Word. And it was something that they wanted to remind themselves of over and over and over again. We have this hope. Therefore, we have an anchor in our lives. And we should praise God for it. We not only have an advocate, we have a hope. Back to Acts 24. So then verse 17. After several years, I came to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Paul's now telling the governor why he came to Jerusalem in the first place, to deliver this love offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem, which I was doing when they found me in the temple, ritually purified, without a crowd or a disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who should be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. And the fact that they weren't present was a knock on the prosecution. Or these men here should tell you what crime they found me guilty of while I stood before the council. And what Paul's simply doing now is using even Tertullus's own words against him. Paul's basically boiling it all down to this. Felix, if there's a problem here, it's a disagreement in theology between me and some Jews. And so it's a theological thing. It's not a political thing. It's not something that Rome, you know, is probably going to want to get involved in because it's an internal thing within the Jewish nation based upon who we believe our Messiah is and our theology. Hence the resurrection problem. And so he goes on to say, other than this one thing, again... Verse 21, I shouted out while I stood before them, I am on trial before you today concerning the resurrection of the dead. Then Felix, who understood the facts concerning the way more accurately, which is an important thing because this is telling us that Felix had been one who searched. He investigated, he took the time to investigate into this Christianity himself. It was something that caused curiosity with him, and he wanted to know more about it. And so he adjourned their hearing, saying, when Lysias, the commanding officer, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he ordered the centurion to guard Paul, but to let him have some freedom, some relief, and not to prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Third thing we have, we have an advocate. We have hope. We have friends or friendship. Don't miss the fact that while Paul was here, his friends came and served and ministered to him. And the reason that this became so, I think, important to me was even as I got into the meaning of the word friend here. First of all, it means uniquely one's own. In other words, the Bible's reminding us that each one of us has a small group of people that we truly call friends, and that that's unique to us. No one else has that unique set of friends, because we all, you know, have different sets of friends, and we are the only one that has that unique set of friends. We we have a unique set, if you will. And the other thing this word means is that we belong to one another. In other words, there is a responsibility that we have to each other as friends, or should have. Friends are some of the most important blessings of God and gifts from God that any of us can ever have on earth. And Paul was thankful for his friends because he's going to spend several years now in prison. Because of this. And yet his friends are there to serve and minister to Paul while he's there. To come visit him and refresh him and encourage him while he's there. I thought to myself, what lengths would I go to for my friends? What lengths do I go to to serve and minister to my friends? Paul had good friends. Friends that stuck by Paul even when he was in prison. That would come and minister and serve him. And as the Bible says, if we want good friendships, then we've got to pour ourselves into those friendships. The book of Proverbs says he who wants friends has got to be a friend and be friendly. We can't sit back and just expect people to, you know, all of a sudden be these bosom buddy lifelong friends if we're not willing to invest time and energy and effort into those friendships and to maintain them, as the Bible teaches us. Friends are important. And each one of us is going to carry with us throughout our life those faithful few friends that's going to stick with us. That we're going to mutually encourage each other and I think the Bible is reminding us here even in this picture of Paul in prison being ministered to by his friends. How we need to appreciate and cherish the friends and the friendships that we have in Christ. Because especially the bond that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ is greater than any other bond. And should be something that draws us together and where we can go after that common goal of lifting up Christ and growing in Christ together. And then finally, we have opportunity. Look at verse 24. We have opportunity. Some days later, when Felix arrived with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Here, the governor is being witnessed to by Paul. While Paul was discussing righteousness, which is the things God approves of, self-control, which is God's power to restrain, and the coming judgment, which is future accountability, Felix became frightened. Literally full of fear and terrified. And you can imagine why. I mean, if you... Knew the kind of life that Felix had lived up to this point. Not a lot of righteousness there. Not a lot of self-control or restraint. And certainly wasn't living his life as if he was going to ever see God or stand before God ever. When people who don't have a relationship with God hear about the truth of God, it can be scary. Because unlike us, they're not sure that they have an advocate. (laughs) They're not sure that they are properly represented and who's going to represent them, which is why, you know, many times they'll come up with the answer, "I, I hope I did enough good works to somehow, you know, appease God. But if we know what the Bible says, that has nothing to do with our salvation. It's by grace we are saved through faith, and it's not of works, lest any one of us should boast. And so Paul is very forthcoming about these things, and Felix starts to get convicted. And so notice what he does he says, Go away for now. I don't want to hear anymore. I'm uncomfortable. And instead of surrendering to Christ, like many do throughout history, they push the witness away. Because they don't want to be convicted. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They want to be comfortable, if you will, in their sin and in their uncomfortableness. Go away, Paul. And when I have an opportunity... A more convenient, fitting time I will send for you. Felix makes a grave mistake here. Now, I will say this. We don't know whether Felix ever came to faith in Christ. We don't know that. But we do know this. The Bible teaches us that none of us should presume that we have a more fitting, convenient time. The Bible says if God is speaking to us about something, to listen, because today needs to be the day that we respond. Too many people put off for another day or procrastinate or delay in the decisions and choices that we should make. And what God was saying to me through, through Felix bypassing this opportunity is reminding me, at least, but we have opportunity. Opportunity. We have an opportunity right now. And and folks, even as Christians, may we not put off or procrastinate or delay what we should be doing or could be doing for the Lord now. Because if we say to ourselves, well, I'll just wait till a more fitting or convenient season, that season never comes. It's like Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he who watches the wind will never sow. A farmer... who's who's out there looking at what the weather report is, would never do anything. Like, well, I'm just going to wait for just the right conditions, and then I'll do this or that. It's like Solomon says, that never happens. If we all waited for just the right time to do this and do that for God, we'd never get anything done or do anything. We just have to do it when the opportunity presents itself. Because we have those opportunities. And I want you to see what a great opportunity Luke and Paul had, even in very adverse circumstances. Circumstances that we talked about at the very beginning that many of us would say, oh, I feel sorry for Paul and for his friends, because, you know, they're just living at the mercy of all these politicians. No, God had his hand on them. And there was a reason why Paul was going to spend some time in prison With his friends. Notice in verse 26, at the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would give him money. And for this reason, he sent for Paul as often as possible and talked with him. Hey, Paul, just slide me a little bribe here or something and I'll I'll let you off, right? After two years had passed, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And because he wanted to do the Jews a favor as well, all this was because of political expediency. Felix left Paul in prison. By the way, the word left there means to disregard. It means to forsake, desert, abandon. Now think about this. What a a graphic play on words and concept that's going on here. Last week we saw where the Lord was standing with Paul. And where we saw where God says, I'll never leave you, desert you, or forsake you. Now all of a sudden we come to chapter 24 and it looks like this politician has left Paul in prison for two years. He's forsaken him. He's abandoned him. He's deserted him. But that doesn't mean the Lord has. Because the Lord doesn't desert us, abandon us, or forsake us, or disregard us, or neglect us at all. God had a higher purpose and reason why Paul was there. If God didn't want Paul there, then Paul wouldn't be there. Paul wasn't living at the mercy of of Felix or Festus or any other politician. Paul was living under the hand of God. And you and I are too. And what I want to share with you as we wrap this up tonight is this this wasn't wasted time where Paul and his friends were just sort of twiddling their thumbs while they were there. They were writing. I believe that it was during this time when Luke was there with Paul that Luke was writing his Gospel. I believe that Paul, while he was there for a couple of years, were writing some of these great letters that we have in the New Testament. During that time, see, ministry was happening. Things were going. They were still seizing opportunity. They weren't sitting there going, Well, God, you know, now once I get out of here, then, you know, then let's get back to ministry. No, it was like, What can I do while I'm here? Because there's always something that we can be doing. I mean, even if you and I are in a place in our life where we're totally incapacitated, we can always pray. And prayer is one of the greatest ministries we could ever have. We could fill our days praying. Because there's so much to be praying for. So instead of looking at the times and the opportunities that we have, well, you know what? Here's what we need to do. We need to seize those opportunities. And we need to remind ourselves that even in those seasons of life and those times in life where maybe things aren't going maybe the way I exactly want them to, that there's still great opportunity there if I'll just keep following God and looking for what God has for me. Because even in those maybe unopportune times that I see from a human perspective, God has some great things that He wants me to take hold of during those less than human opportune times. I also think that there was probably a lot of great witnessing going on while Paul was there. And that there were people who were going to hear about Christ and come to Christ and it was only because God had Paul sitting there for a couple of years. I don't know why God may have you going through what he has you going through or why you went through what you went through or maybe why you're going to go through what you're going to go through, but I know this. We need to all remind ourselves that when we are in those times of life, we have an advocate, we have a hope, we have friends, and we still have opportunity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these last chapters of Acts that really teach us about the life of Paul. And it teaches us, Lord, even about our own life and our own walk with you. And God, I pray that as we finish out this great book of Acts, that God, we would finish strong. And that God, that we would pour ourselves into your word and into fellowship with you with a renewed sense of enthusiasm. We believe, God, that you're doing a work in our lives and in our church, and we want that to continue. So, God, help us to be open to what you want to do. Use us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks, for being here. We'll see you next week.